0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B Y T E.com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte.
1: Welcome to Hollywood and Levine. I am Ken Levine, your podcast host. And as you know, I love stories about people who reinvent themselves. And this week and next, you will meet somebody who has done just that. His name is Johnny Holiday, and if you are in the Washington-Baltimore area, you know who he is, because he is a very prominent sportscaster. He was also a disc jockey. In fact, he and I have an awful lot in common. He's a little bit older than me, but we both worked at one time or another at KYA in San Francisco as a disc jockey, and we both became play-by-play sportscasters in the Baltimore area. Listen to Johnny Holiday. Radio KYA The heart of San Francisco
0: Tommy Siders at 23 minutes at 6 o'clock for Tony Biggs, who's a little ill this evening. This is number five for the Turtles Happy Together. Imagine me and you Back to our top 30 of 1967 at 17 minutes under 6 o'clock, Christmas cash card time. Number four, Aretha Franklin says, what you want, man?
1: What you want, Baby, I got...
0: Third down and four. Davis in motion, stayed to throw out of the backfield. He's got Josh Allen, got a first down. At the 35, at the 40, at the 35 in midfield.
1: 45, 40, waste to the house, cuts it inside. Keeps his balance at the 30, down to the 25, on the 20, cuts it into the 5, and the end zone... Touchdown, 72 yards! Oh, my goodness! What a run for Josh Allen! Do you believe that? And they're piling on him in the end zone! If you ever thought you wanted to reinvent yourself, well, maybe this is the episode that'll give you the inspiration to do so. Johnny Holiday, this week on Hollywood and Levine. The Johnny Holiday Show! Well, I love to have guests on who have reinvented themselves. I think there's a real value in that. And you certainly qualify. So let's start from the beginning and move through your nine professions. <laughs> you <laughs> you, you were a top a job. <laughs> yeah. You were a top 40 DJ pretty much at the dawn of of top forty, and you were in Cleveland, which is kind of the dawn of rock and roll. Those must have been wild times back in the late fifties, early sixties.
0: Yeah, they were they were great times, Ken. First of all, thanks for having me on. My pleasure. Uh, I appreciate the time.
1: We have no parting gifts, but thank you. are welcome.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, is, is anything going to be sent in the mail to me for this thing at all? <laughs> yeah, when I went to Cleveland in nineteen fifty nine. Uh, I was at a radio station called WHK that had no audience. I mean, they were at the very bottom of the ratings. So Metro Media bought the station cleared out the entire staff outside of two guys, Tom Brown and Pete Myers, who would go on to become mad daddy at WHK and then 1010 wins in New York. Uh, And we were young guys. In in a matter of about, about six months or so, we took over and just dominated the market. Uh, The music had changed back. This was 1959 that I went there uh, to Cleveland. I left in 64. But those years, uh, all the disc jockeys were like myself. I was 20 or 21 at the time when I got there. And we had wonderful promotions. It was a battle between like four different stations playing the hits.
1: You would do crazy stunts and things back oh, then, crazy, right? Oh,
0: crazy thing! Yeah, like. Did you like ever my- have
1: a sleepathon? Did you ever have to stay awake for ninety-two no. hours or something? No, but,
0: but, we, but we did have Mad Daddy, who did who did a regular show as Pete Myers in the daytime, that came back at night and did a Mad Daddy show with a cape and the windows covered over with newspaper so you couldn't see in. I mean, it was everything was in rhyme. He dove out of a plane. He parachuted out of a plane into a gigantic blob of uh, jello in Lake Erie <laughs> and survived. <laughs> and,
1: survived. Uh, and you didn't do this. Yeah. yeah. You called yourself dedicated. You, you I, didn't
0: do this, huh? I didn't. I chose not to do that. No, I chose <laughs> to start my basketball team and raise money for charity. But five, five great years in Cleveland, then New York City san francisco and uh here in washington for the past 53 years did you know alan freed i did not no i heard of him but i did not sure know him.
1: right yeah no.
0: and we should mention
1: that uh some of your tapes are actually in the rock and roll hall of fame
0: yeah right when it, when it first opened uh Somebody called me and said, hey, you know, you're in this Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I said, for what? I didn't sell any records. They said, no, no, there's air checks of your show. And what they did was take guys who were big in a certain market and in a certain floor of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, the gigantic map of the United States, and you push a button from whatever city you want to listen to, and up will come pictures and bios and air checks of those favorite guys at that time in that city. So I was lucky to be one of the guys from Cleveland. And so when people say, hey, you're in the Rock. Yeah, I'm in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't say because of my disc jockey work, but that's how I got in there. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I'm in the Baseball Hall of Fame. I know you are. Yeah, because not because (laughs) of me, but because when I was in Seattle, my partner was Dave Niehaus and Dave Niehaus got into the Hall of Fame and they have a sample from Dave Niehaus and it happened to be one of the years when I was there so a couple of my innings are included too so I I backed my way into the baseball hall of fame I'll Congratulations. take it <laughs> I'll take it
0: Hey, whatever works right Ken whatever works
1: exactly So you said you were in New York, and then you went to KYA San Francisco. Uh, As I mentioned in the intro, you and I have a couple of things in common. And one is that we were both disc jockeys at KYA, and number two, we saw the light (laughs) while at KYA. But I want to just go back for a second, because when you were in New York at WINS, uh, there was a an NBC primetime TV show called Hullabaloo. And it was basically the various rock acts of the day performing. And you were the announcer for that show. But then you moved to San Francisco, but you remained the announcer. You commuted every week to New York to be Correct. the announcer for Hullabaloo.
0: Talk about mm-hmm. that a little bit. Yeah, a long way to go for 13 seconds on the air, huh?
1: Yeah. (laughs) That today, of course, with today's modern equipment, you do it right at your desk.
0: Yeah, exactly. Uh, When Wins went to All News in 1965, I called Gary Smith, who was the executive producer of Blue, and I said, I'm going to have to give up the show because I'm taking a job in San Francisco. He said, well, we we have a trade deal with TWA if you want to fly back every week. We got no problem. But take a flight at San Francisco at 8 o'clock in the morning, be picked up at Kennedy at 4.30 in the afternoon. they take me to either NBC in Brooklyn or NBC at uh, Rockefeller Plaza. We'd do two shows, and they would take the best of the two shows and put it together for one. And I'd be back on a flight at 11.30 at night, landing in San Francisco at 2 in the morning, and be on the air at 6 o'clock on KYA, same time. Wow. But I thought I thought nothing of it. And now people say you did what? I said yeah, it was no, it was no big deal because I was like twenty eight, twenty nine, thirty years old, something like that, and that's no big deal. Pretty exciting at that time. Yeah,
1: did you fly first class at least?
0: No, no,
1: <laughs> I did not.
0: No, no. Uh-huh. no, but I did have open seats. If, between- if
1: it was if it was CBS, the <laughs> Tiffany Network, it would be different. It would be different, but it was NBC, so. Yeah, you you flew steerage. <laughs> you also emceed the very last Beatles concert, which, right. of course, at the time, we didn't know was the very last Beatles right. concert. That's but right. did you get a chance to actually sit down and talk
0: with those guys? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I had met them when I was in New York, uh, working with a guy named Murray Decay, one of the big Mm-hmm. This, of all the time he was very tight with the beatles and my first day on the air in new york my boss says to me murray is in miami beach with the beatles so can you do his show tonight they will call in and you pop them on the air and talk to the beatles and murray yeah sure so the first three days of my days in new york i did my show then i came back and did seven to ten at night and talk with john and paul and george and ringo and murray so i i they knew my name. They made a promo for me in New York. And so when they came to San Francisco, we're sitting back in the Giants dressing room and talking like you and I are with Cokes and sandwiches and crackers and snacks around the table. No big deal. And as you mentioned, Ken, nobody knew at that time it was the last time they would ever be together in a concert you know, situation. Right. And they were as, as nice a kids as you'd ever want to meet. Never thought about getting a picture with them. Never thought about, hey, can you sign this? None of that stuff. I wasn't really into that, you know, doing things like that. But they were as nice as can be. The night was a foggy night. Gene Nelson was the other guy from KYA that we shared the stage and uh, took turns introducing the acts. And I think they did about maybe 40 minutes And a typical cold San Francisco night, fog rolling in. The sound was going out to the bay because the speakers were shooting that way at Candlestick. It wasn't sold out. There were maybe twenty thousand, twenty-five thousand people there. Wow! Tickets were six dollars. The top <laughs> tickets were six dollars. Yeah. Did their set got in the armored car at second base? Went to the airport. Gone. Last time together as the Beatles.
1: Wow! Yeah. And of yeah. course, when you were in San Francisco, you got to KYA in nineteen sixty-five and uh and left uh, a number of years later but the whole music scene changed and you were in san francisco during the summer of love and and all like that did you get a chance to meet in their early days janis joplin and grace slick and a lot of the others who came from they northern actually, california
0: we when when the when the fm station started making inroads on the am stations Our boss said to us, uh, we're going to open the door for any act that wants to come in and sit with you guys. No matter what time of day or night it is, they're welcome to come to KYA. We will play their cuts from their albums. We'll interview them. So it would be automatic for me to be sitting there and Grace Lick is with me in the airplane for four hours. Janis Joplin, Big Brother, The Holding Company, The Bo Brumbles, all these acts from San Francisco. Uh, right there with us all the time. It didn't really work because the FM stations with Tom Donahue and Bobby Mitchell, that you know, Mm -hmm. had started KMPX and they became a major, major force in the Bay Area. And so we kind of hung on, trying to stay with them, but you couldn't stay with them. They were so good. And they'd play the entire album, whereas we couldn't. But um, yeah, it it was nice to meet them and nice to be involved with them. Some of them had been on Hullabaloo, so I knew them from that show, but it was, it was quite a time when they well, changed the music. It was really tough for AM stations and for top 40 stations to survive.
1: Yeah. Top 40 radio had a certain innocence to yeah. it. Yeah. Sort of yeah. pop. And uh, yeah, the, the music was getting much harder edged. Uh, what was Janis Joplin like?
0: Uh, flamboyant, I guess would be the expression mm-hmm. with her dress. Um, uh, I think she was kind of guarded. To be honest with you, all the answers were pretty much cliche answers. But
1: uh-huh.
0: I'm lucky to be doing what I'm doing, and I love the music, and I love my writers, I love my producers. I I don't think she, to me, she didn't really open up much. Grace Lick was a lot better.
1: Yeah, I met her too, and she. And the other people on the
0: airplane were really, really nice. Uh, the Bo Brummel, a San Francisco group, they were tremendous. Um, I'm trying to think it's uh country Joe and the fish guys uh-huh. were really, really good. Sly stone became a real good buddy of mine in San Francisco. And people may not know that he was one of the best disc jockeys, R and B disc jockeys in America. That's right. On KSOL. KSOL. Yeah. yeah he, he was tremendous and used to hang around with him all the time. And Billy Preston as well. Um, uh, So a lot of great memories of those days. Now, did you ever have one of these groups come
1: in and they were just totally stoned, just totally
0: shit-faced? Quite a few. (laughs) (laughs) I think we've already talked about some of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that was kind it it was so funny. It must have made for some interesting radio. Well, it it was interesting too, Ken. I I would sign off at six o'clock and I'd get a call from Bill Graham. He'd say, what are you doing tonight? No, oh, nothing. Going to go home. He says, "Stop by, stop by the uh, the ballroom over here." And we got a 11 mm-hmm. spoonful and we've got uh, every mother's son, and we got blah blah blah. So I go over there to the Fillmore and walk in, and I got a pair of khaki pants on, a white polo shirt on, a baseball cap, and running shoes, and I stood out somewhat from the crowd. <laughs> they were they were dressed a, a narc. There's a narc in the room, <laughs> and I'm walking in, going, "What is this smell? That I, this is some kind of an aroma in this. <laughs> I mean, I stood out like a a wet rag in this room. But he he was he was a good guy too, really a good guy. So transitioning into sports, how
1: did that come about?
0: I had uh, I played football and baseball and basketball in high school, and I was an average player. And then when I got to Cleveland, I started spotting for the Cleveland Browns. And the Dallas Cowboys came to town with Frank Gleiber, was the broadcaster, play-by-play guy. Later on, became one of the best guys on CBS. And he would call me up and he'd say, "Uh, Johnny, I got the 25 bucks for you. If you can spot for me, spot the Browns for the Dallas. Yeah, absolutely. Sure. So I like the way he did things, Kent. He was very low key. He would never get excited or anxious before the broadcast began. And once the game began, he let the game dictate how he reacted to plays and his enthusiasm, his excitement. He never went over the top. Uh, He just was so much in control. And I put in the back of my mind, if I ever get the chance to do this, man, I would love to be like Frank Lieber. And I got the chance later on. And he was the first guy that I spotted for. But I also spotted for Chris Schenkel. When Chris Schenkel and Pat Summerall came in to do games. They were the voices of the New York Giants at the time. That's exactly right. I was their Mm -hmm. spotter. And the Green Bay Packers, Ray Scott. And all these guys, each one of them I took and I said, I like the way this guy does this and this and this. And you kind of form your own personality remembering how these guys were and how successful they were. And if you want to get to that point, then you better try and do what the the best in the business can do. So I did the spotting. And then, uh when I went to New York, I did no, no sports, just the television thing. So when I got to San Francisco, I did the Giants game show on television, channel two. And then, uh, I got a call from the same station saying we have an Oakland Raiders game in Miami. You've done play-by-play, haven't you? And I said, "Oh yeah, yeah, sure." <laughs> no, I had not, except the one game at Perry High School in Perry, Georgia back in 1956. My first year, <laughs> my first two months in raid. So I go to Miami doing the Raiders game back to my- for television, and Dave Cassort was my color guy, the former Buffalo Bills tight end. And so that was the basically the first game. The second game I did the day before I came to Washington was Cal Stanford, the big game down at Stanford when Plunkett was the quarterback. So I did that. So that's the only two play by play things I did until I got to Washington. Well, that's, that's football, but didn't you also do basketball in San Francisco? Well, Rick Barry was my guest, was my co-host. Yeah. Rick and I did the Saturday night game of the week. The year he jumped leagues and had to sit out, he not only played in my KYA Radio Wonders charity basketball team. It happened to go fifty-nine and one.
1: Well, you talk about a ringer! For God's which, sakes,
0: which game do you think we lost? He missed one game, <laughs> and we lost in overtime.
1: Well, it wasn't to the yeshiva, I imagine.
0: Well, you know something <laughs> he he was not the he was not the leading scorer. He made sure everybody else got involved. He was. not Score never took over unless he had to. And we're playing against some coaches that were pretty good. I mean, guys just two or three years out of college. So a couple of games he took over and we won. And I said to Rick, I said, when your playing days are over, man, you've got a job on television or radio. Because he was really, really good. And he told me later on that the reason the networks don't use him right now is because he's too honest and the NBA wants to promote only what they want to promote. They don't want any negativity. He said, I can tell people right now how to stop LeBron James. They don't want to hear that. And that's Hmm. why he's not on television now.
1: Interesting. So, so the KYA disc jockeys with this ringer come into a school Were were
0: the fans booing you? Oh, God, no. I mean, Rick Barry was the NBA rookie of the year the first year. Second year, like the most valuable player. So they were glad to see you guys stomp their faculty. So they went nuts. And we only had myself and maybe three other disc jockeys play, but they really weren't basketball players. They were on the team. And we had a couple of coaches that were really good when they played in, in college in San Francisco and Oregon. But Rick was the headliner and signed every autograph, post for every picture, and you could not get into the gymnasium to watch us play. Every game sold out. Either because of him or me. I'm not sure which. Right. Probably The
1: Beatles don't sell out. <laughs> the KYA basketball team does. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> now, was it kind of... Grange, because people in San Francisco thought of you as this disc jockey, and now you're in a different world. Um, Did there...
0: Was there any credibility issues? I think they were surprised I could play. Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. I played in high school. No, but I mean...
1: I I, 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 I mean... Well let, let me let me start this over let me rephrase this Being a disc jockey right. though and getting into sports people put you in one category right. you know you're not in your lane anymore when you're right. when you're doing right. sports and did people take you seriously or was it like well like what's what's cousin brucey doing here calling Calling basketball games.
0: Well, I had gone. I funny, uh, that's a great question, Ken. I went through the same thing in Cleveland. When the guy that ho- my first television show was a college scoreboard in the Saturday football game of the week. I replaced a guy that they, they didn't feel like had any credibility <laughs> because he was the host of the Kitty show on the on the TV station. Okay. And so they said to me, can you do better? I said, well, yeah, I think I can. Uh, but I think you have to, you've got to gain the trust of them. You have to let them know that just because I was playing music, that doesn't mean that I can't call a game. And I never thought about that until you asked me. And that that was probably something I had to prove myself, that I was good enough to, to do games and do interviews with coaches and players and stuff like that. Uh, I never thought about it at the time. Well, it
1: also helped, I'm sure, that you were pretty genuine on the air as a disc jockey. You weren't one of these guys that, you know, was Mad Daddy and had a cowl and spoken rhymes and echo chambers and bubbling cauldrons and everything. You were like a real person. So that probably helped because, I, like I said, I can't see... Cousin Brucey calling a Knicks game. (laughs) I can't either. No. (laughs) Even today, I can't see him doing
0: that. (laughs) Yeah. What got you to Washington? Uh, The chance to do more than just play the top 40 records and give away $50,000 every hour and uh, work in a limited format. Excuse me. I, I thought I had more to offer. And so I had quit KYA to go into television on Channel 2 and do sports every night and got a call from our friend Howard Kester, who says, you know, our station in Washington is looking for a morning man. They've also got the Washington Senators and they got the Bullets games. And you can do both of those and you can do the morning show. And it's middle of the road music and personality. So I took that and It's the best thing I ever did. I mean, I've been here 53, 54 years, and I loved it. I loved doing a pregame show for the Senators, interviewing Ted Williams every week, every day throughout the baseball season, and then working with the great Tony Roberts, who we lost a couple of weeks ago. Yeah,
1: great play-by-play guy. I mean, just
0: the best in the business. I was his analyst for Bullets Basketball, and he was the play-by-play guy for the Senators at the time when I was doing the pregame show. And then when he did Navy, I took over after him. When he left Navy, they said, well, can you take over? Absolutely. So I kind of followed Tony along the way and uh, it all worked out good. Then I took over Maryland back in 1979. So this is my 45th year doing Maryland.
1: How long did you still do a morning show? Because... That must have been quite a schedule if you're doing a baseball game or a basketball game and and getting home at midnight, one o'clock, and then you have to be on the radio at six in the morning. Uh, yeah, that's a young man's. <laughs> that's yeah. a young man's game. How long did you do that schedule?
0: I, I did it for ten years, from sixty nine wow. to seventy nine. Yeah, sixty nine to seventy nine. But it wasn't it wasn't that busy because at WWDC where I was senators had left town we had lost the bullets so the bullets left us probably in 72 or 73 and the senators left in 71 so I really wasn't doing anything the only thing I was doing was theater I do a show every single year and so there really it wasn't that bad and then when I went to ABC sports it became a little tougher because I'm doing morning sports I'm doing Maryland football and basketball. And then throw in the announcing duties for Sam and Cokie and David Brinkley. I'd have to come from the airport at one o'clock or two o'clock in the morning and go right down to ABC and tape my morning stuff before I went to bed. So that kind of got, became a little bit of a juggling act. But overall, to me, it was never, it was never that big of a deal. Yeah. Well, as long as the charter flight was on time. (laughs)
1: Yeah. (laughs) Which they always were. Yes,
0: sometimes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned working for ABC. You did the Olympics, summer and winter Olympics yeah. for uh for a number of years. That must have been a fascinating unique experience.
0: Yeah, what was great about that was the first Olympics I did was Sarajevo with Barry Tompkins as my roommate. And in those days, ABC had the television rights and the radio rights. So we had guys crossing over that we would use from television and vice versa. And on the radio side, we had, we had Bill White. Remember the former catcher for the New York Yankees? Mm-hmm. Bill White was one of our analysts. Lou Olson was one of our analysts, Arizona coach. Uh, we had just major, major talent working with us in those games. So I did Sarajevo. How do you also- do
1: radio play-by-play play for the slalom? And then he goes left, and now he's going right.
0: I covered. And, the, oh, he I almost hit the, the flag. Bobsled as well. And I went down. <laughs> I went down to interview the Jamaican bobsled team that had turned over. Uh uh-huh. Yeah, that was a big story. Helmets, and mm-hmm. I said, uh, uh, "Were you guys uh, kind of concerned and scared when that uh, thing turned over?" Yeah, man. Uh, we were scared, yes. But our head was on the ice, so nobody could see how scared we were. <laughs> <laughs> okay, all right.
1: Well, yeah. we had the Olympics in 84 here in Los Angeles, one of LA, the Olympics yeah, that you yeah. covered. And the uh, so we live in Westwood, which is right by UCLA. Sure.
0: We're well, walking we're
1: the, distance from UCLA. We'll and,
0: be out there next year in basketball. No, no, we're coming out this year, Ken. Are the you? December 23rd. We play at UCLA in basketball. All right. Well, you and I I'll, are going to get see dinner. You, at the
1: game. you and I are going to get dinner. Yes. You
0: bet your life. Um,
1: yeah. And I hope we beat you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know either. Uh, but the Olympic Village was the dormitories at UCLA. And during that whole period, you could just walk down to like the campus center and there were all these kids from Korea and Bhutan and France. And it was great. You just hung
0: out with, with all of the athletes. It, It was like a really wonderful time. Yeah. Great time in LA. I remember the thing that stood out in my mind about those games was Jim Valvano was our expert analyst in basketball. Oh, what a wonderful man and coach he was. And I've got the Jimmy V Foundation shirt that I'm wearing today. I don't know if you can see it or not, but there it is. Well, not on the radio. Let me point my microphone. You see see that, that. people? Yeah, there it is. Okay. Uh, The Jimmy V Foundation, I'm very much involved in. And we would come back to the hotel, and we would sit around the pool, and his wife was with him, and just listen to Jimmy Valbano's stories. And he was just incredible. And when he coached at NC State, when they played Maryland, it, it, I'd have to say to him, hey, coach, can we tape the pregame interview? Because I have to go. Because he wanted to talk about everything but basketball. And and one, one game at Cole House, I said, what is your biggest concern about Maryland? He said, I'll be very honest with you, Johnny. The biggest concern is, well, I have a place to sit on the bench. Because I have seven assistant coaches, and a lot of times there aren't any more than five or six seats there. So I'm concerned about where am I going to sit on that bench? So they, before they tip off, the team comes out, they go by the bench. He goes down, he comes back, he taps in front of me, he yells out, one seat left, it's mine, and goes back and sits down. Now, this is before a big game but in his mind <laughs> he was uh, he was everybody's friend everybody
1: loved him see now in terms of game's play uh if i were marilyn i would take all of the chairs away <laughs> From all, the, the players have to stand
0: make them stand sorry there's there's make, no more chairs left make them stand i agree yeah the Johnny holiday show
1: there you go. That's part one. Come back next week for part two with Johnny holiday, right here on Hollywood and the
2: Fine. Look around. You can find cars like these on auto trader, new cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay. No flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on auto trader. Just you wait. Auto trader. You know how to book flights and hotels.